and the actors are acting in front of you, it's as if they're acting only for you. I don't restrict their performance. You can never tell from an actor, from a leading actor, what he's going to do. Act yourself, figure out how to rehearse. You just have to do it. Try to not over-talk it or overthink it. Leave some mystery to happen. Because I was an actor myself, I know what they're going for. Hey guys, I'm Dean. You know my associate Bucky, and we are back for another episode of Actor-Director Talk. We're doing another deep dive on a director, an actor's director, and today we're going to be doing Sidney Lumet. You may know Sidney Lumet from such films as Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, The Fugitive Kind with Marlon Brando, and many, many films. He's done many, many films. The Verdict with Paul Newman. He's, he's, done, he's done hundreds and hundreds of, not hundreds, but he's done a ton of films that and he's done it all and all actors love to work with him so we're going to discuss deep dive on his um his method and his process of working with actors and how he brings out the best in them i just want to kind of start off by saying that as we have previously mentioned in the first episodes uh we've mentioned that the importance of having an acting class uh, especially as a director, uh, puts you somewhere above, I'd say, 80, 80 to 90% of uh, you know, your peers out there. And the reason is, is the proof in the pudding. You know, you've got Sidney Lumet, an individual that started off as an actor. You know, he, I believe through his teens, he did a lot of uh, stock theatre and summer theatre. Oh, he did Yiddish theatre from the age of four. Exactly. Um, so he started off as, he was one of these uh, directors that started off as an actor as well, kind of like Ilya Kazan. How he differed was uh, he was in that generation, but he was also a part of the group theatre uh, to begin with. Um, then uh, upon kind of disbanding the group theatre and creating the actor's studio, and we won't go into, into depth again if you guys uh, interested, listen to the Ilya Kazan episode um but essentially he started off as a as a teen in the group theater he did some small roles some small plays then as the actor studio came about he was really good friends with uh i believe robert lewis Mm -hmm. and uh at the time that robert lewis and kazan were both uh running the actor studio um he was invited to audition and partake to be obviously part of the uh part of the studio system um but somewhere along the line he actually spoke about how he believed that the system in america in itself was very good at realism but where where their strengths lied and where they've kind of solidified that realism they didn't have the capacity to do things like shakespeare to do uh stylistic types of uh uh, acting and and performing so he you know being a you know at that time outspoken guy he he mentioned that to to the studio uh to the actor's studio and um i believe a few months later he actually got culled he was one of i think 20 other people that was let go part of the system because i think it was a it was like a yearly thing that, that, that they did, that he himself went on and, and formed a, uh, a school um, that he wanted to base it not on having the uh, or drawing in people to create, uh, so, sorry, drawing in people to be able to use that place use that studio system as leverage to become famous or to become big but he wanted to create a a workshop that was designed to test all sorts of systems of acting all sorts of systems of technique because he believed that that's basically what what was lacking at the studio at that time and also the the people that it drew in he said uh, a lot of them came in there that were professional actors and they were doing you know, scenes that they were doing plays on Broadway. So it wasn't challenging, but it was brought in because those actors doing those scenes wanted to be seen by Kazan or 
rubber lures or other agents to be picked up. So it was kind of a little bit of a, of a chess game there. So he didn't want any of that. He just wanted to explore uh, the craft and, and, and figure out all other methods that were kind of trying to fit that pieces of the puzzle. So uh, he invited a lot of his friends. I think it was about 20 of them. And they started to create like a workshop program. Yeah. So he, he took all the other guys that got um, culled from the actor's studio. Mm-hmm. So I think there was like 12 of them. And then he ended up finding other actors. So he had a, like um, a troop of about 40 actors. Right. A repertory of 40 actors to work with. Right. And yeah. then and then they they did like a like a workshop system where they would test for a period of time they would test a certain system. Yeah, so they started off with realism and then they would work their way backwards. So they did uh you know, they worked on Chekhov, they worked on Shakespeare, they worked on Greek tragedies mm-hmm. over a 3-year period. Yeah. So but he also brought in other, you know, technical experts like uh, a movement person, you know, a dance uh, person, a vocal coach, because he believed those things nobody was teaching at that time, especially the actor's studio. So um, at that time, you know, when they were doing all these scenes and they were doing like Dean said, Shakespeare and, and all these, uh, you know, different styles of, of scenes and plays, um, he realized that nobody was you know, directing or they, 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 he didn't want it to be like a, basically like a closed off system where you'd have, um, you know, I'm in charge and, you know, the rest of you don't have any input. It, but he realized that he naturally started to to direct certain scenes um, because, you know, the people that he was working with, you know, he, he, he found it just naturally. I don't know how specifically because I can't get into his brain, but he yeah he started he started doing that and he found a lot of pleasure in it and um and then he moved on from there yeah yeah like for example you know he also got like a fencing coach to come in because like in Shakespeare there's a lot of you know sword fights and like it's for example in Romeo and Juliet so you know like so he was trying to do the play as accurately as possible for the time period of like what would they have had how would they have performed Shakespeare back in the day they would have had, you know, some kind of choreographed fencing battle. So, you know, our actors need to know how to do that. Like, let's and have the movement of a Shakespeare actor, you know, like it's all in the text. So he was always looking to recreate that um, with all the different styles of text uh, going backwards and, you know, really understanding the acting process and, and different ways of, uh, of doing a text. Yeah, correct. Uh, I believe he went on to do a bit of live television. Yeah, so he did live television uh, plays. Mm-hmm. He did he did uh, plays on TV. Mm-hmm. So he started off that way and and doing like live broadcasts of plays. Yeah, on television, which he said obviously he learned a lot because at that time the system wasn't so developed. The the, the film and TV and entertainment industry wasn't. It was a new thing that everybody was still learning. So. He was this young kid that had the opportunity to to try and fail, you know, which was a great thing because he said it gave him a hands-on experience and to learn a lot just by actually doing it and being in that system rather than having to be, you know, thrown into a system that's already got its roots and, and, and it's well established. But now I just I want to talk to you about how he's kind of thinking in terms of you know working with his actors and like his his basis in his in his roots of like um understanding of of what is good acting like he he believed that basically many actors can can duplicate and have uh good performances by duplicating life but the 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 great actors the exceptional actors or the actors that he wanted to work with or bring out these things are the ones that could have it experiential in a way to use a part of themselves and he would he would consistently say you know i don't want life reproduced i want life created you know if you look at that line it's everything that kind of dean and i have been speaking about in the last whatever episodes that it's about uh, a side of you know allowing a side of that person to kind of filter through and he believed that a lot he believed 
And I guess that was uh, from him learning to that foundational system from the group theater to the actor studio to doing his own styles that even though he, he learned all these other styles, he realized at the root of it was always about experiential acting. No matter how you can duplicate the life, no matter how you can make it seem like you're, you know, performing or, you know, uh, indicating in the most subtle way, he could always pick it, you know, and there's that story, I, I, you and I have heard it before, but it's it's worth telling again about Marlon Brando. You've heard it before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, you know, he talks about, you know, how Marlon Brando would test the director. So he would do two takes the same way, but the first take he would not put anything in it. He would not actually experientially do the scene. He would just do it, but do it as if it was a copy of life. And then yeah. the second thing he would indicate. He would indicate. Yeah. Exactly. That's 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 kind of in the simplest way. But he would do it in such a way because he was so good at it. Brando was so good that he would hide it. That when he did the second take, he would make it look exactly the same to the untrained eye. But then he would do it experientially. And then he would look closely to the director and see which which take they would print. And the the take that they would print is is how he would basically uh, treat the whole project and treat the director. And the reason he did that was not not to be uh, complicated or a diva. He would do it because he realized that if I'm putting in this much work into this project and you don't have the eyes or the the knowledge to see which take or which performance is the real one, then why should I put that much work in when you're not putting in that much work as a director? And Sidney Lumet realized that, you know, and then when he worked with Brando, he said, lucky, lucky I, I, I picked it because, you know, we had a great working relationship. Yeah, he really loved working with Brando. Like he had a great relationship. Like he'd heard all these stories like not being interested in acting or hating acting and, and doing other things like going swimming instead of being on set and acting and stuff. And Sidney Lumet's like, I didn't, I had no problem with Brando because we both had this mutual respect of each other. Because you know, I I worked in a way that he that really engaged him, and he was very happy to be to work with me and stuff. And any time we did have a quarrel, it was all about the work. It was all about the creativity and and creative differences. It was never egos. It was never you know a lack of disinterest or you know um, him being famous, a famous actor that gets what he wants. It was all about the work. And making sure that the story made sense and the characters made sense and everything made sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, look, it makes sense to us, but like if you look at it in terms of working with, um, working with, with actors and understanding uh, what they're going through, and, and Sidney Metz said that, they, you know, somebody interviewed him and they asked, why do actors love working with you? And he said, it's because I know what they're going through. I mean, it's a part of our intro. Yeah. Right? Um, that's Sidney Lumet, by the way, in, in our intro, if you can catch it. Um, that, in a sense, the, the, the whole Brando situation, Brando had respect for him and he had respect for Brando, you know. So that respect of understanding of what the actors go through means that you're prepared as a director and you understand um, what is required to basically give a give a performance and and is required of script breakdown character knowledge uh, besides you know the the production you know the the the, the, the lenses the, the cinematography the lighting the the sound which are all important um, also knowing knowing the story knowing having confidence that those things those uh, superficial things are basically layered on top of you understanding the story, you understanding the, the characters, you understanding the acting process. And he was really, really engaged and he loved um, working with actors. And he said, you know, he himself felt late, later on that um, he couldn't reveal a lot of himself. That's why he couldn't be an actor. 
but he had so much understanding because he, he would always say, you know, it's a, uh, acting is a, is a part of self-revelation and it has to be a part of self-revelation. It doesn't mean it's, it's about you and about your, you know, dead cat, dead dog. Um, no, it's about, it's about being vulnerable and, and being up there, you know, because as he says, you know, when, when you have an actor that's, that's open and the whole world sees that, you know, you can seize the ugly side of humanity and sees the good side of humanity and it's it's basically their hair, their face, their nose, their eyes, their voice, their body up there that he understands that. He said, I, I totally understand that. But he said, now you take a spin on it that you look at it from the female actors, right? So the actresses, he goes, that's, it's even harder for them as they age. You know, that's that's what they're actually just considered as, you know. Most women, especially in those days, were just, you, I mean, even these days, they use the sex symbols, you know, that there's hardly any meat on, you know, on the bone of the, of the story for, um, you know, a 50-year-old woman with like sagging, you know, arms and, 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 and the turkey's neck and all these things that a lot of a- actresses are, are really more, more, even more insecure so he goes, he goes, he understood that. He understood that because he experienced it. And he always was on that level with the actors. He was always on that understanding of it. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's like if we keep doubling down on this thing of, of self-revelation, it's, it's basically not having a guard up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that he he talks about that with Paul Newman on the verdict. Exactly. You know, like he, you know, they were doing the the film, and Sydney Lament was like, "Hey, Paul, you're not, you know, what you're doing is good. It's good, but it could be absolutely great. And you really need to like, I can't tell you what it is that I want per se. Like, but you really need to dig." deep and down and you really need to be very vulnerable right now. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know exactly what, but I need more vulnerability from you. I need you to be like this open wound, you know, like that's the character. Yeah, and he believed it was Alliance. Paul Paul Newman, uh, it's in his book, if you guys read Making Movies, um, which is a, a must read, whether you're advanced or whether you're starting out. Mm-hmm. Just read that book because it's it's a really good book for for indie filmmakers. But he he says it in the book. He believed, you know, that Paul Newman said, you know, once I get the lines down, you know, I, I think we'll be all right. And that's what Dean and I have always been alluding to in the last how many ever episodes. We kept reiterating the idea that it's not about the lines. Yeah, and, and it was it, also like a David Mamet script. Right. So you know what I mean? Like David Mamet is is such well respected playwright. You know, if you just imagine, you know, if you guys that don't know, maybe David Mamet, imagine Tarantino, and you know Tarantino's dialogue is amazing, and you, you know, like Tarantino wants wants what's written on the page to be exactly how it is on the screen. So of course you would have this reverie of like, oh, I have to say every word, I have to make it, you know, count and work because. The script is so good. The dialogue is amazing. So you do get caught up. It it is it is very seductive. It's very it's a trap to kind of fall in love with the lines. Like the lines have to be perfect because it's Mammon, it's Tarantino, it's Shakespeare. But you know that's that's a trap a lot of actors fall through. And and you know I've seen many actors of different experiences, new actors, even. Actors that have been the professionally acting for you know decades, and they just like it's all about the lines, the lines, the lines, and you just see it, and there's just it just hits a note. It's good, but it's not great. It's not vulnerable. It's not real. Um, so that's a that's a really big thing. If you can really see the difference between you know, knowing the lines or like kind of worshipping the lines versus trying to be in the moment and then the words 
coming on top of a character, you know, like that is going to save you so much headache, so much, you know, like you're really going to be able to see like which actors you want to work with and which actors you can't work with because they're just so enamored by the lines. So this is where, as we've said many times before, you'll notice, you'll see this in acting class a lot. You'll you'll see this 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 subtle difference, and when you can see that, you know, like you will be in the top one percent of directors. Yeah, that's that's correct. But here's the thing, though: um, Paul Newman and Sidney Lumet, they they were good friends before, so they had they, that trust. Uh, Paul Newman worked on his very first uh, things, his live TV plays. Yeah, on television, so they, so they had, had that relationship yeah. where you know Sidney Lumet could talk personally with Paul Newman and get him to do yeah. that. And apparently, Paul Newman went away on the weekend and he worked on himself. He found it and he came back and did it. And they're like, "That's it. That's perfect." Yeah. So we're not saying that, like, you know, he 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 was still, you know, they're good friends, and he was still saying, you know, I I value your privacy. I don't want to you know, step in those boundaries, but it has to be something more. Uh, uh, he said there's something missing, you know, and 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 he wouldn't invade that privacy. But uh, as as Paul said, you know, I think it's the lions. He said, no, it's not the lions. It's something, it's something, uh, you know, it's, it's, you need to find something that's, that's reveals that character. And it's, it's a personal side of himself. As we go back to saying, you know, he believed that, you know, all acting is is self-revelation. Um, yeah. So he, you know, he believed that that's what was missing, that there was a part of him and he, and he said once Paul Newman was a brilliant actor, he got it um, and he trusted him. That's that's the level that, that, that they worked with. I mean, I don't know if Paul Newman would have worked with a director that he didn't know so well. Would he have trusted that director on the same level? I guess that trust has to be established first. Right, um, and then you build on top of that. So he came back and he, he said he did a great job. Like he just blew him away. Yeah, and the, and by the way, guys, this wouldn't this 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 process, this thing that happened between Paul and Sydney, this did not happen when they were shooting in the middle of a shoot. This happened in rehearsal. Correct. Uh, Sydney Lamette, um, on average, would do two weeks of rehearsal. Yeah, let's talk about his rehearsal yeah. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was very big. He was very, very big on rehearsals. It was a, a process where, you know, he got, he learned and did everything because he just knew with film, he said that it, film is very hard because, you know, you're shooting out of order and out of sequence. So the you're all, you're all like your job as a director is always to try and, you know, get the actor to know where they've just come from and where they're going in contrast to the play. But with his rehearsal period he would rehearse different scenes and then by the end of the rehearsal he'd be doing full run-throughs like a play hmm. so then the actor could actually see how to act throughout the whole play yeah he uh, said he said sorry to interrupt before we kind of keep jumping into it he said the reason why rehearsals are important was for two things he said it was not only to understand the mechanical aspect of it of the scene and of the story and how it ties into the film but also to get the revelation and emotional uh, readiness and trust from from his actors, because he believed once he could, uh, you know, open himself up to the actors, they opened up to him, and then all these, you know, uh, private emotional revelations would would seep through, and he would get, you know, so so many different things that he wouldn't he wouldn't put himself in a corner to to lock in anything. It was about exploration. So even coming in there, this is how he would think, guys. He wouldn't just go, okay, I'm setting up the scene this way. This is what I've had in mind. He would be like, all right, let's let's work on the story. Let's work on the characters. And then after it's all done, then he brings in the uh, the camera and the, and the cameraman and that. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so he, he, he would rehearse for two weeks. Yeah. Initially, yeah, I think yeah, and then he would be doing a full run through the last three days of the rehearsal. Exactly. So he would, what he would say is he would do 
standard two weeks, uh, three weeks to four weeks if it was complex characters. So yeah. Long Day's Journey to Night, he did four weeks. He did four weeks. Because that's a very complex, exactly. multi-layered play. Like there's lots of going on, lots of themes. Like it's a very dense text Right. And there's a lot to process and a lot of complicated relationships. So he needed more time. But with all these rehearsals that he did, when he got to shooting, he'd be shooting very quickly, very effectively. Mm. He was one of the only directors that could shoot uh, uh, cut to cut, cutting camera. Like he would just get the shot that he needed and he knew when he got the edit that he needed and then he would cut it and then print it and then move on to the next setup. Like he knew exactly what he wanted. And most of the most of the actors that he did work with, like every shoot he said, he would nail it in the first one or two takes and then he'd be moving on. Um, but then... You know, there'd be always that one stage where there'd be one shot or one setup where it's not working, and then he'd be doing like up to eighteen takes on one on one shot or one setup. But otherwise, it would be one to two takes, you know, max four, and then he'd have it and go. But he had it because of the rehearsal. He knew he already worked on that. The actors knew what they were doing. Everyone knew had 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 that muscle memory of doing that performance. So it was very easy to capture it on the day and and just plow through filming. So his shooting schedule was always very small and he looks very small on paper, but then when you add the rehearsal, it became a standard uh, shooting schedule for most feature films. Um, so so can we can we um, just delve into his rehearsal process, how he kind of went about rehearsing? Um, so if we start off with his initial uh, first two or three days, um, he would first off grab a, grab the script, grab the, the cast, the leads have to be there. He would have a uh, rehearsal hall or space that, that he would use. It would be a table read, which you guys obviously know what that is. Most people do. Um, that uh, at the table read, it's usually him the main actors, the actors that are, you know, supporting and the writer is present throughout because the writer is making changes um, as need be, right? Um, the uh, the introduction to the, the, the smaller characters would be possibly the on the second week. So if he needed to do certain scenes um, with the, the smaller uh, parts he would bring him in on the second week um, and work with them that's the level of thinking that he had the um so the way he did it was the the, the first reading was basically just uh through the instincts through the actor's instincts so no pre-planning no nothing it was just just a simple read through um so then once he's done the um the the, the read through he does a uh, another one the next day but uh, he realizes that the, the first instincts that the actors have are usually the best and, and, and highlighted in its first read-through because your instincts cannot uh, be replicated. So once the second read-through happens, then it becomes a thing of uh, uh, staleness. But what he's trying to do basically is he's chipping away to... to to create actions, to create doable things in order to compensate for that instinct. So um, what he does is initially with the actors, he tells them for the reading for the first three days. He says to them, and I have it written here, he says, um, I do the same spiel to, to, to everybody, every reading. I say to them, quote, go as far as you feel. Do no more or no less. Don't worry if it's right, the emotion, or if it's wrong. This is why the rehearsals are there, to find out. All we need to do is just talk and listen. Don't worry about losing your place in the script. What's important is talking and listening. So he makes them uh, become aware at the very, very start so they don't uh, start to perform or cut down those instincts, you know, cut down those... Uh, impulses that they have right 
um, that when they come to doing the second reading, they're trying to, um, the writer at the same time is trying to figure out, is the dialogue uh, clear? Is the uh, information that's being conveyed clear? Is the story too long? Is it too short? So the writer's consistently making changes, which, which helps a lot. Um, and then after those three days, what he does is he throws it up on its feet. So what he does is um, he marks the hall with uh, tape. So whether the, the scenes are interiors or ex exteriors, he marks where certain walls will be for the actual production, certain uh, tables, chairs he uses for the actors for have minimal, minimal props um, so they can get up and actually do it. Right, which Dean and I have mentioned so many times in this podcast. You know, it's about getting up and, and exploring and doing it. So he uses that um, after that initial period where um, including things like, you know, uh, physical scenes like fight scenes and things of choreography, he uses, uh, you know, tape to kind of mark out certain sections, different color tape for different rooms, et cetera, et cetera interiors and exteriors right so he wouldn't go outside and do it he would still do it within within the, the rehearsal space so so he would basically the reason why he would do it this way and what what he would do by throwing it up on its feet is it would give him uh certain ideas he wouldn't try to stage anything in his head to begin with so he wouldn't say um, I have the whole storyboard mapped out. This is where I, where I want you to stand. This is where I want you to go. No, he, he would he would explore certain things with actors. Sometimes they would say, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to, you know, sit here on this line. Maybe I should get up and move away. And then they would explore it, even if it's even if it's wrong for it. They would they would see, and he would take that in, and he wouldn't have a preconceived idea. But then you know. Uh, he wouldn't have a preconceived idea of the the way he would stage it and the way where the camera would be either. Um, but he said the most important thing was that, you know, it's it's about the actors opening up to him. The whole rehearsal process is about that trust and we're talking about that trust thing, you know, um, but it's, it's also about uh, him, Sidney Lumet, learning about the actor learning about like what stimulates them, what triggers their emotions, you know, what, what angers them, what, how their concentration is, what type of method of acting do they use? Uh, because he believed, he believed in, in being adaptable to the actor. He didn't push anything onto them. He didn't say, you have to be the method. You have to do it like I have to do it. Um, no, at the basis of its, of its core, right, he said, that no matter what technical acting background, and he's worked with a lot of different yeah. styles of, of actors. Along days journey tonight, he had like four four main actors and they all worked a different way. Yeah. But he said at the at the root of it, um, he believed the most important thing was to really be talking and really be listening. No matter what style you come from as a human being, you have to have that. So he always encouraged that. Yeah, well, he always had this thing of, you know, like he said, as a director, my job is like I see like infinite amount of choices, like a limited amount of choices. And my job as a director is to whittle away those choices until it becomes the, the film. And how I decide what choices I'm going to go with is I first work at the theme. The theme is the, you know, and we talked about this with Kazan uh, a couple of weeks ago, same thing. Kazan does the same thing. What's the theme of the story? What's that through line throughout the whole thing where then I can make, you know, if it as long as the choices are in line with the theme, then we're we're good to go. Then we can we can continue on this path. And that's what he's just trying to do is as a director, you direct all the choices to be in line with the theme. Not just acting, but the camera, the cinematography, the lighting, the sets, the wardrobe, everything has to correlate to that theme. 
and that's how he made all his choices. Nail on the head right there because he he would say that's that's basically in the in the first reading he would discuss the theme which is the most important with the actors in the reading and then he would discuss each of the characters and then each of the scenes and then each of the lines and what they mean and he would go relating everything back to that theme like Dean says which um which then relates to once they do the second reading the actions or the doable things that the actors kind of bring in would fall in line with that theme would fall in line with they're all hitting the same target no matter what acting background no matter what department everybody has the same uh focus beam to the same kind of target that they're looking at and how they how they do it in their own way is up to them but they're all looking at the same target and that that's that's really important so once he's on his feet and once he gets the um the the staging and and the run-throughs like Dean said he would he would go through the start to the end of the rehearsals he wouldn't he wouldn't break it up he would go in a consecutive uh rehearsal period so the start of the script to the end of the script and the reason he did that was not not just so he could see how the story flows and 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 because the writer's there to, to see whether it makes sense but also because it helps the actors he realizes um it not not only helps him but the actors as well because when you get on set you know you know exactly where you are because films are shot out of sequence you know exactly where you are because you've rehearsed it con- consecutively from start to f- to finish that you know what's just transpired um and where you are kind of as as a character which he realized it helped he helped a lot with with the actors so what he would do was as you know as the final days approach he would do like a technical rehearsal and it would do like final run-throughs then he would whether he would like the producer or not he would decide to to invite them to watch the the final run-throughs and then he would bring in the cameraman and then show him the rehearsal and the possibilities of what they can do and then they worked around that um, to create a storyboard and create you know what you would see so then in the in the final day he said he would do one or two full run-throughs like just non non-stop mm-hmm. you know from from start to finish and then that would give him more leeway like dean said you know he would become very economical and very um efficient in his shooting process because he said it would just have little tweaks here and there that would uh on the day that it would be required to, to get the actors to stay fresh yeah and also that process was just so, you know, that they could be open and, and vulnerable with him. You know, like that's that's the whole point that, he, you know, that the whole rehearsal process is about the trust between the director and an actor and your, and your crew that, you know, that if problems do happen in the shoot, then, you know, there's a trust that, hey, if there's something not wrong or something not working, then we've rehearsed. We've been together two weeks. We know how each other work. So, you know, if I need you to to show more or or to do something that you're going to trust that I have your best interests in heart, that we have the same target, which is the theme of the film and what we're making and creating, and that you're going to trust me to in order to deliver those amazing performances. You'd always... Be cautious of never violating the, the actor's privacy or pushing any any uh, agendas. He said he learned very quickly at a younger age that he needed an actress to do a scene um, where she wasn't able to cry or give him the emotional response. So he said he made a mistake of and he would never do it again. Is coming over and slapping the actress and she did the scene and he, he said she did it beautifully um you know because he, he just physically slapped her and she started crying and then when he called cut and print he felt so bad because he felt so sick but the actress came over to him and she thanked him she was hugging him and he said you know i'll never do that again um you know i've learned that there's so many different ways of, of getting that same reaction that um you know once i've expanded my technique i can go other avenues to get to there but if I can't get it from them, then that's fine. I can't. I just have to move on because that's 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 that violation of you know that 
you know, other uh, human being that, that shouldn't be there. So um, he believed that and he also believed knowing, like you said, building that trust and knowing the actor. So knowing their, not only who they are as a personality, but knowing their lingo. Like he would, he would talk to Marlon Brando a certain way but then he would talk to um, James Dean a certain way. He would talk to, you know, um, different actors based on their different styles, based on their different personalities, different ways. You know, he would talk to, I can't remember which actor it was, but he would talk to this actor in terms of um, a musical style, like in terms of a rhythm of a style. He wouldn't talk to them about a character, whatever it was. He would talk to them as like, you know, it's more staccato in this, you know, in this part rather than, you know, something else. Mm. So he realized that he was there in service to be malleable and be kind of adjusting to the to the actors. So like with rehearsals as well, like, you know, that that's a, a good part to like discuss the script and make sure the script's working. As Bucky was saying, like there's a... A scene, uh, a story about him doing it with on um, working with River Phoenix on mm. running on empty, and there was a bit where uh, River Phoenix's character is playing on piano and he's doing some like really beautiful um, thing on the piano, like a classical piece, and then there's this girl that's coming up from behind him, and he and he recognizes that the girl's coming up behind him, and then he does this like hokey kind of hokey pokey kind of tune. In order to like impress her, and you know, Sidney Lament recognized that, and he went to the writer and said, "Yeah, this this part is a bit corny. Everything's great. The rest of the script's amazing, but this scene doesn't quite work." And the writer was just fighting Sidney Lament, like, "No, no, no. This I I wrote this specifically. I, I like this scene. I don't want you to touch it. Like, no, I think it's really good." Um, and then Sidney Lament was like, "All right." understandable i get it you know it's your piece you wrote it whatever um let's see how we go in rehearsals and you know let's, let's watch them act out the scene and we'll and we'll go from there and then river phoenix came in and he goes yeah just before we start this scene i find this scene to be really really corny can we like can we change it or something because I, I i don't think this scene works and, you know, River Phoenix is like a young teenager and stuff and he's telling this woman that's double his age, like, yeah, you know, nah, I don't think this works, blah, 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 because it's just corny and it's just everything's so real and this is just really phony and like feel, feel like very like cliche movie scene and stuff. And because both Sitting Limit and River Phoenix are both saying that there's a problem with this this part that she ended up rewriting the script so sometimes you know instead of fighting with a writer about rewrites and stuff about no this doesn't work or this you know then show the writer show the writer like hey this doesn't work show you know rehearse it you know that's the whole point of rehearsals is you can show the writer if something works or doesn't work or you can show the writer that hey it's not just me that thinks this i'm not an egotistical director that's trying to like you know, make you do things that you don't want to do. I'm trying to help you, the script and the story and we believe that if we do this, like it looks good on paper, but in reality, this is going to look face and false and you're not going to be happy with the end result. Like if we're feeling this, maybe the audience will too. So, you know, this is, a, you know, this story is a good way to highlight if you're having problems with other departments on set, like producers or writers um, or actors that you can kind of show them like hey let's do it well, let me show you exactly what, what I'm talking about you know maybe you, you know and that also invites for you as a director to be wrong you know like maybe you'll do it and maybe there's a, a choice and maybe you can make that scene work or maybe you can't but you know the proof is in the pudding and that if you take the action and actually do it you know you may find the solution uh you know, like he, I, I know that, um, you know, a, a movie that, um, that Sidney Lament really loved making was, um, Find Me Guilty with Vin Diesel. 
Um, it's like a big courtroom drama. And they'd be doing like eight pages a day. And um, because everyone's really static in the courtroom, like everyone's pretty much sitting down or they're in the spot, the judge is where the judge is, the mm. witness stand is where the witness stand, he was able to do multi-camera. Mm-hmm. And he loved multi-camera because with multi-camera, he could focus on the performance. Mm-hmm. Like it's all about the performance because everyone's static and, you know, he was able to like bulldoze through a lot of different things because mm-hmm. multi-camera and, you know, if someone does a performance, you got the reaction right there from the other character. So he really loved digital filmmaking because it allowed, you know, better lighting and you could see more on low light. So he was able to capture a lot more. So he really loved that process because it, it multi-camera it focuses on performance. And that's, you know, so if you're thinking about, oh, do I go single camera or multi-camera, you know, the, you know, multi-camera might not look as good, but multi-camera always has the benefit of performance. And that was Sydney Lumet's main focus was getting those performances so he he loved using multi-camera or he loved using like even when he did um before the devil knows you're dead he'd always make like you know the 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 bar scene where the brother confronts the other brother about what he did that he shot you know shot his mom and stuff in the jewelry store um he he made it so he shot it so like there were you know like it, all the actors had to, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawker, they had to give their performance because they were both in the same shot. Like he always included them. He never did like an over-the-shoulder where, you know, an actor was just reading his lines off camera and working with the other actor. Like he'd always make it so they were both in the scene. So so their performance really mattered and they had to give their all in this one shot because they're both sharing the screen with each other. So... He felt that was really important when he was when he was shooting um, shooting that way is to to make sure that both actors are present and and ready and and ready to almost like you know uh, put their put their whole selves on the line for this scene because they're both present. So you know otherwise you know if you're phoning it in you're going to see it on camera. So so the lesson there is you know if you're finding you're working with lazy actors. Um, that would be a strategy that you could use and implement is to have shots that always include both of them on, on, on screen so that they can't phone it in or they can't read their lines off camera um, because, um, yeah, sometimes actors do that. They're like, oh, yeah, cool, as long as, you know, like, you know, there's there's certain actors where that if they're, you know, if it's a super wide shot, they won't give as, as much for their performance. Or if they're off camera, they'll they'll kind of just give enough to be a, a reaction for the other actor to you know to get to feed them lines, but they're not really present. And it just reminds me of that um, story with Shane Black, um, and he talked about working with Samuel Jackson on the Long Kiss Goodnight, and he said, "Man, whatever Samuel Jackson was doing, he was always delivering the the best and the biggest performance no matter where he was. If he was like not even in shot, but he was like in, you know, inside a car, but we can't really see him in the car. He was delivering it like it was a close-up on him. And he goes, Samuel Jackson was the best actor that I ever worked with because no matter what he did, he was always delivering that performance as if it was a close-up. I think it's, it's also about him understanding and he said that uh, actors usually give their best takes in the first four takes and mm. then after that they would kind of drop off. And he said sometimes it's needed that the actor do more takes to kind of get through that slump but he realized that it's within the first four that he would get the you know best takes that he would usually use um so that that affords that ability to kind of focus on the performance but once again if you don't know how to stage it and how to rehearse and understand acting it's it's useless just to have two cameras with two uh bad performances or like two people that aren't listening to each other or you know, aren't, as Dean says, present, um, like in the sense of what does that mean? What does that mean? If you don't understand that listening to this, then, you know, you won't pick it up. 
you'll do the same thing that uh, most directors did when watching the Brando performance. You won't know which one to choose, the first or the second take. They will look the same to you. On the surface, on the superficial level, they're both going to look the same. But, you know, a guy like Sidney Lumet, he, he picked it up. He knew that, you know, even though they looked the same, one of them had a certain underlying thing that, that, that he needed. You know, and that's just the understanding. Sidney Lumet was very big on invisible directors. You know, like he didn't like films where the director was showing off, the, you know, like, you know, making the audience aware that they were watching a film. That, you know, the director would do some kind of special shot or technique that would take away that you were watching a film. Like, like he didn't like Godard because Godard would do all these like mm-hmm. fancy filmmaking things and it would take away from the film. Like, he loved Scorsese because with Scorsese and even, you know, like himself, like he, they would just be invisible. They'd always be focusing on the performance and every, all the directing was like the performance was like the main the main ingredient in, in the stew and like everything else was there to serve that performance. So that's why, you know, he was the best and why everyone wanted to work with him because they knew that, that performance would get all the attention and all the focus would be on the attention. He wasn't interested in like flashing and going, I'm going to do this special shot that's going to, you know, flip the camera around and we're going to go around and we're going to flash back to this and do that. No, he was always about crafting the performance and making sure that the, imp- the performances were the important part. There's one story where he uh, did uh, working with Al Pacino on Dog Day Afternoon. And there's that scene where he's call he's calling his his wife and his uh, transvestite, you know, boyfriend girlfriend. You know, she want you know he wants a, a sex change operation, and that's why he's robbing the bank to to afford the the thing. And it's like a fourteen minute scene and stuff. So he had to like you know swap reels in the camera because there's only so much a reel you know back in the day when you're shooting on film. So he had to like you know swap the cameras around or swap the reels or have a second camera ready to to pick up in order to film this this very long take and you know Pacino did the whole scene and you know it's a very like emotionally draining very exhausting scene and you know but because of the reality of like it's a bank it's a bank robbery he's been in this bank all day it's a highly adrenalized thing you know you'd be very exhausted and Sidney Lament was like didn't believe that Pacino was you know, like at his absolute limit and peak, you know, because when you're exhausted, like more emotion comes out, becomes more emotional when you're exhausted. So he goes, you know, like, and that's, and he's calling, you know, the loves of his life, you know, from the bank, like that he might not make it, like he might not, you know, like it's a very intense situation with the cops outside. So he, it's, it's life and death. And he just felt like he'd get more emotional from emotion from Pacino if he was more exhausted. So he just, said, hey, hey, Al, we're not going to cut. I want you to do it all again. I want you to start and, and, and do, do, do it everything again. And Pacino was like, what the fuck? You know, like, ah, I just gave you everything. Like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, just do it again. And Pacino did it again. And, you know, by the time he did it, he was completely lost. Like, he was completely, he was so exhausted that he actually came, he came into the scene. Like, he couldn't even, he couldn't even remember what he did. He was so in the moment that he forgot exactly what happened. He was like in this trance, in this like, in this moment. And only when he watched the rushes the next day that he could remember what he did. But he was so lost in the moment, but he got the performance that uh, he wanted from Pacino by getting to do this long, exhaustive take again um, because it needed it. Because it was like a highly dramatic, emotional scene and he needed that emotion and... By exhausting him, he, he, he got he got what he wanted. Yeah, it, it takes a certain type of director to actually, I think, understand that what a scene is is missing, you know, and, and how how much more the actor has in them to be able to kind of bring that into the scene. Because sometimes, you know, you might push an actor and they might not have it. So I think he was very intuitive in knowing, you know, his actors, knowing from working with... Um, them and obviously rehearsals um but he even mentions now that you say uh, dog day afternoon he mentions working with uh, john cazal and if you guys don't know who that is 
look up John Cazale. He's um, Fredo from The Godfather, but he worked with he worked in four films that were Oscar winners, I believe. Or Oscar he worked five films. Five films. Yeah, Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Part Two, D Hunter, and Dog Day Afternoon. Brilliant. He had a brilliant career. Uh, Very short, but brilliant. So when uh, it's interesting you say that because uh, when uh, Sidney Lumet worked uh, with Al Pacino on, on Dog Day Afternoon, they've he already cast Al Pacino, but they were trying to find the role of of Sal, right? So he's this, this, the the henchman that comes in there to to the bank with him, and uh, in the in the script initially was written as a young kid, as some young kid that's nervous and you know which was fine and that's who Sidney Lumet was looking for he was doing a lot of searching around trying to trying to find it and Al Pacino was good friends with John Cazale and John John Cazale uh they did a few plays together they um you know uh I, I don't know if they they worked on Godfather yeah they would have they, yeah. they would have worked on Godfather um so they they knew each other. They were really good friends. Uh, Al Pacino suggested, you know, John Cazale. He was like, he'd be great for it. I, I know him very well. And, you know, Sidney Lumet didn't didn't quite go for it, you know, this and that. But he said, no, no, let, he can come in and read with me. You know, let's 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 try it out. So Sidney Lumet was open to it. He said, all right, all right. He finally convinced him. He's like, I had to listen to Al Pacino. He knows what he's talking about. So they got uh, John Cazale to come in and, and, uh, and read. And Sidney Lumet was just blown away. It was just like, no, no, it has to be this guy. And John Cassell was like in his 40s that they, he basically convinced the writer to, 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 to change, change the script because when they did the rehearsals, he was like, it was just unfreaking believable Some of the things that he just, he, they both came up with because uh, John Cazale and Al Pacino, they both came from a um, theater background and they knew how to rehearse. They knew how to improvise. And he allowed that. He allowed that uh, to be pushed even further. So, so a lot of that is actually left in the film that Sidney Lumet just loved and encouraged. But he was, what I'm trying to say is he was very open to the idea of changing the, the script by seeing the uh, read or seeing an improvisation between John Cazale and, and Al Pacino, you know, kind of being open to that idea rather than, most directors go, no, no, it has to be like this. It's written like this. I had this picture in my head. Well, it's it- a true story. So, like, there was that reality as well. Like, this is exactly what happened. And, you know, a lot of creatives fall into that trap. Like, no, exactly what happened. He's a 40-year-old kid. He's got red hair. He has, he's got freckles. We need that because if it doesn't look like the character, everyone's going to go, no, this is made up. This is fake. But so mm-hmm. even though he, he cast older, he had that, mentality as a character of being a bit slow over being a bit you know dim-witted and stuff so he had the mentality of 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 a younger person but he was just an older character with a receding hairline Mm. you know it's like well you know like i think there's a there's a scene where it's like what country do you want to go to you know like where do you want to go like when we escape the bank when we get the helicopter which country do you want to fly to and he's like uh wyoming you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and apparently Sidney Lumet loved that. He said, "Keep, keep that in the script," because he was laughing. He couldn't, he couldn't hold his laughter back because it just came in the moment. And he encouraged that. He encouraged that a lot. I mean, even um, uh, that that famous scene of Al Pacino going out there and he's he's yelling "Attica, Attica." Yeah. Um, even that is like you know improvised and and you know he encouraged a lot of that if. He trusted the actors, and if the tr- and if the trust worked both ways, and he knew the actors knew how to do it, knew how to improvise. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, let's just improvise. Like like today's uh, day and age uh, directors, where Im- improvisation has a structure. It has a very direct uh, structure, and we've spoken before in another episode about improvisation. Um, that he understood that structure, and he understood that the actors had that structure, and understood it that he let them kind of within the limits of their own characters. So, yeah, a lot of actors really wanted to work with him because of that, you know, because of that freedom to do it. Yeah, and he just made great films, you know, great character-driven films. So uh, I just want to end on a quote from Sidney Lament. Those of us who have had good work can admit the truth, which is 
good work is an accident. That's not being falsely modest. There's a reason that the accidents are going to happen to some of us and will never happen to other people. We've got some sort of knowledge or instinct of how to prepare prepare the ground for the accident to happen. Because some people work in a way that they shortcut any chance of the accident happening. That's brilliant. That's in the bank. Right. Right, guys. See you later. See ya.